0: stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good morning. Welcome aboard, folks. Rob Breckenridge uh, filling in today uh, and uh, the rest of this week. Next week as well, uh here on 770 CHQR, our number 403 974 talk Plenty to get to uh, on the program today. We'll talk a bit more about Canada-U.S. relations. Had the big uh, virtual meeting yesterday between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden. They, they seem to be much closer than was the, the case with the prime minister and president you know, last year and the previous four years. But what does that actually mean in practice? Where, where are we going to see some movement on some important issues? We'll talk about that coming up out later on today. Also, Janice McKinnon, uh, former Saskatchewan finance minister, of course, uh, oversaw the, the McKinnon report in Alberta, uh, taking a look at how money is spent in this province. And she's got some interesting thoughts as well on the question of how we generate revenue and the Business Council of Alberta last week tried to kickstart that conversation. Now We'll get into that coming up later on today. We're going to hear from the commissioner of the Alberta Junior Hockey League. And we'll talk about their plans to restart their season. Also had this announcement from the province this week about a new 50-50 lottery draw to help. Alberta's junior teams, both in the WHL and the AJHL. So we'll get to that coming up later on this afternoon. Uh, Off the top this morning, and you've been hearing on the news, uh, today is the day that appointments were opening up for any Albertans, well, technically born in 1946. So you might not have turned 75 yet, but if you were born in 1946, you can now book your appointment to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Plenty of folks are attempting to do so, uh, so much so, in fact, that they're having some issues. Maybe not surprisingly, uh, with both the website and the phone number. Uh, the website, by the way, is ahs.ca/covidvaccine. You can also call HealthLink uh, to book an appointment eight one one. So far, as of 920, Alberta Health Services say more than 4,500 Albertans have successively booked a vaccine appointment, a lot of other folks, though, are having some trouble getting through. And uh, it sounds as though some of these appointments are now going to stretch into April. Uh, that from uh, AHS saw on their Twitter feed just a few minutes ago as well. So we'll continue to monitor that situation. Meanwhile, speaking of vaccines, it looks as though the U.S. is uh, on the verge of approving the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, some of their data released today, and it looks as though the uh, FDA very close to that emergency authorization use. And if that happens, looks as though the U.S. would have three to four million doses uh, of that vaccine available next week, which means the U.S. continues to pull uh, further ahead than Canada. Things are starting to increase here in terms of vaccine availability, the two we have approved. Not clear when Health Canada is prepared to give the green light to Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca. So it's prompted some conversations, obviously, about uh, prioritizing the vaccines that are available, how we go about doing that. And also the question of one dose versus two dose. Uh, The United Kingdom has taken the approach uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine of spreading out the doses uh, 12 weeks and uh, there was some some comments today from one of their chief uh, scientific advisors that they believe that is working well. Is it something maybe Canada should consider once we start to have more doses uh, available? So a lot of decisions to be made about uh, how we approach this. And I think we're also learning a lot more about the, the real payoff that these vaccines can have and a lot of the data that's coming in, in particular, from Israel. Now, but joining us to talk about all this this morning, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Zane Chagla. He's uh, an infectious disease specialist in Hamilton, associate professor at McMaster University. Dr. Jagla, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome. Uh, to no
1: hunger. problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, by the way the, the Johnson and Johnson data out today and it looks it looks pretty good. I mean this is a one shot vaccine which is important. It's it's much easier to to store, to transport. Uh, so what do you make of uh, what we saw in this data today and how imminent that that vaccine might be here?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's extremely promising. So again, this is a one dose. The numbers are slightly lower. We're talking about and again, they were looking at moderate to severe COVID People that um, you know had symptoms or reasonable symptoms, or people that were hospitalized. Um, The data looks very promising—about sixty to seventy percent protection against severe and and moderate COVID nineteen in South Africa. Interestingly, they saw a lot of B one three five one, the variant there, and still saw about fifty percent effectiveness day fourteen. That goes up to about sixty percent effectiveness by day uh, twenty eight, and. I think the elephant in the room is this vaccine is cheap. It's a single dose. It can be stored in a regular refrigerator, uh, and it's you know it's one that could be scaled up incredibly quickly. So this is super promising data. Um, you know it, it it would mean if everyone got a single dose of this vaccine tomorrow hospitalizations would likely cease or become significantly less people would be protected there's some data that actually prevents transmission which is you know as good as it gets so you know this is going to be a very very important global vaccine the hope is places like us can get it but my equal and and even more bigger hope is that places that are much more harder to reach low and middle income countries have a good access to this uh this vaccine because it will change the pandemic for them as well
0: yeah Well, yeah, South Africa actually switched over from the AstraZeneca vaccine to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's interesting, isn't it, how high Pfizer and Moderna sort of set the bar uh, when it comes to vaccine efficacy. But, you know, we we shouldn't sell the Johnson & Johnson vaccine short. You mentioned that there are some notable differences in where these trials were conducted, and and Mm -hmm. that actually speaks well of of what the Johnson & Johnson results show, and particularly when it comes to severe illness, when it comes to death, and, and those are obviously the most important factors we're worried about. The results look really, really, Good, but I, I guess that's that's the problem in assessing these vaccines. After we saw the initial results from Pfizer and Moderna, everything else seems to come up short.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's the other part is framing the context, right? Pfizer and Moderna ran their trials largely during. The summertime, when, as we all know, the density of infections was much less, um, you know, and and Johnson & Johnson, the, the data submitted today cut off on January 22nd. That is actually, you know, when we saw this massive wave occur across the earth, where the risk of one being infected is actually much higher. So it may be a little bit of apples to oranges to do that comparison. Uh, and again, we, we discount, you know, we say 98% or 95%, but we discount practicality, right? I would rather a 75% adequate vaccine be administered to 10 million people than worrying about how to administer a um, million doses of a very high cold chain difficult vaccine in that sense, right? And so, you know, the effects from a population level are going to be there with Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and, and again, we, we have to recognize these trials are a little bit different. Their populations are different. And so it's very hard to make that cross comparison.
0: Now, with regard to, to the Pfizer, and, and I guess the Moderna vaccine, uh, there, there's been some conversation about how to approach the two doses. And, and, and I mean, look, the data from Pfizer does show that there's still some good protection after that first dose. But yeah, I mean, it's something you want to be careful about. So as, as Canada moves forward, and our, our availability of vaccines starts to pick up, and there was a study last week in the New England Journal of Medicine, suggesting maybe we look at a one dose approach or stretching out the interval between doses, how, how should we approach that do you think?
1: So I mean I think you know number one not all of these vaccines are the same and so Moderna and Pfizer fit into one bucket and AstraZeneca fits into another bucket. Mm -hmm. You know AstraZeneca there can be a good case made to deferring the dose to day 90 in that vaccine because actually in the clinical trial there were a number of people that got the dose day 90 and they studied them. They saw their effects. They saw them relatively similar to people that got their dose earlier. So I think you can make that argument to people to say, hey, this is going to work just as well. We actually have real-time data on people on how to do it. Uh, And, and, you know, you can make that argument for it. Where Pfizer and Moderna are a little bit different is that no one has really studied what day 90 looks like for those people. And so, you know, there were people up to day 42 in the Pfizer trial that got the second dose. The authors of that, that paper in the New England Journal of Medicine really just went back and said, you know if we take a look at people fourteen days after they get their first dose to so when they get their second dose, how many how much protection is there they suggest ninety two percent based on the FDA data, which is great, but you don't know what those people look like you know three, four, five weeks after their first dose that that right. assumption is really based on people Who got their first dose who will eventually get their second dose what it looks like for that short time interval in that sense there is probably some buffer we just don't know what that right number is and i think given that context going to day 42 makes sense because there are people studied in the clinical trials that went to that when we talk about day 90 it's a whole lot more dicey at that point and and you know realistically we don't know what the profile of someone who gets two mrna vaccines day 90 looks like in the short-term or the long-term. Recognizing this 95% I think we're trying to achieve in terms of efficacy might not be achieved by that regimen. And we don't have any examples from other vaccines uh, of this platform that we can draw from. You know, adenovirus vaccines have been given in Ebola, and so at least we have some data from there, whereas RNA vaccines, we really have no data on how they work long-term, uh, and so really that deferral strategy gets more dicier and dicier and dicier.
0: Yeah, so you know, it's something we've we got to be very careful about. I get the some of the, the points that have been made about making the most of the doses we have available, but we also got to you know stay in, in line with what the data is telling us, don't we?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, at the end of the day, we want the maximum efficacy for our population. I think we're willing to accept a buffer for the logistics and getting more doses out. But we, the last thing we want is to necessarily disrupt what these vaccinations are supposed to do. I would say, you know, places like England and Quebec and New Brunswick are going to be interesting as we watch their individuals to answer these questions. I think we'll get a better sense of whether or not it's an effective strategy in in real-time populations. So our strategy may change in three months once this is all sorted out. But for now, I don't think we have better data to change for more than a 42-day regimen unless, again, something else shows up in the interim.
0: It's interesting because, you know, there's, there's increasing optimism when it comes to vaccinations. So Canada's supply is going to continue to increase in terms of, you know, the, the payoff. We're seeing some really encouraging data, there's data out of Israel, uh, suggesting that indeed these vaccines do appear to block uh, transmission, not, not just illness. So that's really encouraging. We're seeing some countries where where cases have come down substantially, even, even mm-hmm. without uh, mass vaccination, uh, India, even South Africa, too. So we're seeing some really encouraging trends, but, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, obviously, and there is still concern about the situation here. I mean, how would you describe the, the situation we're at right now, both in terms of vaccines, in terms of what we're seeing the virus do? It seems like we're we're in an interesting spot here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're in this precarious place. I mean, I... I keep describing it as, you know, turbulence before the landing, where we have, you know, the, the ability to shift, pivot, the, you know, we don't know if rates are going to go up or down with the variance and re-engagement with society. The vaccines are getting out there, but we're just starting to see community vaccinations across the country I mean, hearing about Alberta. And, and there are challenges, even with getting that going. You know, we're, we're at this tipping point where things could go south a little bit. But long-term, I think, you know, we're getting better weather. People are going to be outdoors more. Vaccines are getting into the right arms. We've seen incredible work done in long-term care where vaccines have shut down transmission and and lowered deaths dramatically. Um, There is a lot of hope and optimism that we hit that landing. It's just going to be bumpy for the last little bit of that trip.
0: We'll we'll leave it there for now. Dr. Chegg, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today
1: no problem
0: all the best all right to you as well thanks again for joining us here uh, that is uh, dr zayn chagla he's a professor at uh, mcmaster university an infectious disease specialist in hamilton so his thoughts on some of the data is telling us about vaccines again really encouraging now it's the case of all right well, let's get those vaccines here let's get them into two people's arms and obviously we've had some issues on that front over the last couple of months hopefully that's starting to change so we mentioned at the outset some issues this morning, uh, you know, with just such an overwhelming amount of demand uh, for um, people to book vaccine appointments. Anyone born in uh, 1946 or earlier now is the opportunity to book a vaccine appointment. But again, the system's having some trouble keeping up with that. So we'll keep you updated on that. But that's at least, you know, a step in the right direction, right? That we're now starting to expand availability and, and hopefully we can get all of this ironed out and keep going down that path. Already what we've seen in Alberta, and we haven't vaccinated a lot of people here yet, but uh, that we're able to target long-term care homes. And we're already seeing as a result, you know, cases coming down, the number of outbreaks coming down in long-term care. In fact, it's to the point now where there's a real conversation happening about, you know, can we start to safely ease a lot of the restrictions that were in place for long-term care? Because this whole situation has been so incredibly isolating, so difficult on the residents. So those are the conversations you like to be in a position to have. We got a lot to get to uh, on the Wednesday edition of the program. Again, 403 974 8255 is the number here today. My name is Rob Breckenridge, filling in. We're back with more right after this. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Latest from Alberta Health Services 6,000 Albertans now, age 75 and older, uh, have been booked to receive their vaccine. AHS says appointments continue to be available. Uh, But obviously, there have been some issues for folks this morning getting through on the website, getting through on the phones. Um, So it sounds like they're trying to sort those out, but people are still getting through and people are still booking appointments now up to 6,000. But again, it's a reminder, right, where, yeah, look, for the past couple of months, the biggest issue we've been dealing with is the fact that we just didn't have a sufficient quantity of vaccines. Disruptions to our supply and and that all rested the feet of the federal government. But this is where the province has got to make sure they're ready to go and to be able to do their part. And again, it's not to say that that we failed on this front and maybe issues like this are are to be expected. But what's going to happen when we open this up even further? What's going to happen a little bit down the road when, uh, you know, the the appointments are available to a much larger number of Albertans? Are we going to be able to handle all of that? So hopefully there's an opportunity here, not just to, to fix whatever's going on this morning, But to kind of learn some lessons and say, okay, what happens when we have, you know, double the amount of people or 10 times the number of people at some point looking to book vaccine appointments? So we're going to be able to handle that sort of volume because then that becomes an issue for the provinces. The feds are the ones that got to get the vaccines here. The provinces are the ones that got to figure out how to administer them. Make sure people get appointments, know where to go, and that we've got that all taken care of. Then there's the tracking of, of first dose and second dose. So there, there's a lot logistically that the province is going to be responsible for. And we got to make sure we can hit the ground running when we got the availability, right? So we'll continue to monitor that uh, as it unfolds here this morning. Uh, again, uh, 811, you can call Alberta Health Link or the uh, website is ahs.ca slash COVID so those appointments are available as of today, but as mentioned, still some issues with the booking process. All right. A lot more to get to in the program today. Coming up after 10 o'clock, we're going to hear from Janice McKinnon, the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. Former Saskatchewan finance minister, of course, uh, led that panel, a blue ribbon panel that took a, a deep dive in Alberta's spending. And made a lot of recommendations for maybe how we, we change the amount of money we spend in Alberta, the way we spend money in Alberta. Now, we got a budget coming down tomorrow, and it's probably not going to be a pretty picture as we're all anticipating. So, what kind of conversation, though, needs to happen about overhauling spending in Alberta? And what about on the revenue side? Now, the premier has ruled out any, any tax increases in this budget, and I don't think anyone was, was expecting that. But at what point, or is there a point where there's a conversation around revenue? The Business Council of Alberta last week put out a study saying once we've cleaned up the spending side of things and that that needs to be the first priority, that we need to circle back and have a conversation around revenues, that we don't have a reliable revenue system in Alberta, that we have both a spending and a revenue problem, they argue. So, is that the case? What does Janice McKinnon make of that? Uh, She'll join us coming up after 10 o'clock. So we'll talk about those two challenges and what we should expect in this budget. I mean, obviously, there's a focus right now on dealing with the pandemic. There's a focus right now on trying to get the economy rolling again. But at the same time, you know, we're racking up a lot of debt in the process. And so we, we can't be blind to that either. So we'll talk about that uh, coming up after 10 o'clock. Just to let you know as well, uh, we are going to hear from Alberta Finance Minister Travis Taves on Friday morning. So the budget comes down tomorrow afternoon. So we'll talk to the finance minister on Friday in terms of uh, you know the decisions they made with regard to this budget, how big that deficit is, what the plan is going forward. If there's one bright spot on the horizon for the Alberta government, there seems to be a lot of bullishness at the moment regarding oil prices and, and even talk potentially of oil hitting triple digits once again, something maybe a lot of people thought would never happen again. It's not to say that it's, it's a lock. I don't know that the Alberta government should go into this budget tomorrow uh, with a forecast of $100 a barrel oil. But at least in the short term, that could really boost Alberta's fortunes, couldn't it? So we'll see what kind of anticipation the Alberta government's uh, entertaining with regard to future oil prices and the impact that has on the budget. But again, when you get back to that revenue question, part of it is, should we continue to rely on that? We do have a, a, an, and have had for a long time a, an awful lot of reliance on, on energy revenues. And those are very cyclical, as we've seen. So do we need to get away from from relying on those revenues? Do we put those, when they're flowing in, do we put those into savings? Do we beef up the Heritage Savings Trust Fund? Do we keep doing what we're doing? So anyway, we'll get into all of that coming up after 10 o'clock this morning. After 10.30 today, as mentioned, we'll talk about the Trudeau-Biden uh, summit yesterday, the uh, virtual summit, uh, but the first uh, for this new president. And, and so it seems as though he's made a priority of recognizing Canada as as a key ally. Okay, that's good. But what does it actually mean in practice? I think we've got some legitimate beefs. And are we going to see any movement on those? I mean, I think the door's closed on on Keystone. So that's off the table. But what about the Buy America stuff? What about on vaccines? Are we making any headway on any of these issues? If not, then okay, I guess it's nice that the two are, are friendly, but What does it actually mean to Canadians? We'll talk about that after 10.30. Uh, We've got some open line time coming up at 11 this morning, so some time for your calls. Uh, At 11.30, we're going to hear from the commissioner of the Alberta Junior Hockey League, and uh, we'll find out where things are at with the AJHL. They're looking to resume the season in uh, early March. I think players are actually now into uh, quarantine, as a matter of fact. Uh, getting set for the season. So they're going to sort of do a cohort approach in terms of matching up teams. And there is going to be weekly testing of players and and all of that. So they're going to try to finish a a season here. And they'll get some help via this new 50-50 lottery that was announced this week. Because obviously these teams count on having fans in the stands. That's not an option, unfortunately, at the moment. Hopefully soon, maybe. But for now, not an option. So we'll talk about uh, this uh, lottery and the impact it's going to have on junior hockey in Alberta. So that's coming up later as well. Plenty to get to today. Your calls as well. Rob Breckenridge with you here on 770 CHQR.
1: Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.